This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel app. Did you know the app can help you forecast more than just the weather? With allergy tracking and fluid mapping. So you know when to stay inside and load up on podcast, As well as air quality and UV indexing. So you know when to get outside, load up on sunscreen and podcast. Forecast more of what you love with the Weather Channel app. Hello, everybody. My name is Laura Packard, and I host this show because I have personal, firsthand experience with the American healthcare system. Because about five years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, and I went through insurance denials, surprise medical bills, and a whole lot more uh, to be here today. So we are here to answer your healthcare and health insurance questions and uh, help get you the knowledge you need to navigate through our system. So please call or text in your questions and we will answer them in a future episode. And right now in December, what's happening is open enrollment. And uh, to tell us what that is and what's going on, welcome Zoid Finch from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. So open enrollment period is um, the time when any just about anyone is able to enroll in health insurance through the Affordable Care Act, or if they're already enrolled, um, select a new plan and renew for next year. Um, it's currently, um, there are basically two deadlines you need to keep in mind. So the first is December 15th, which is coming up in a few days, and that's the deadline to get coverage that starts on January 1st. Um, and then if you miss that deadline, you will have until January 15th to get coverage that starts on February. Um, also, if you were automatically renewed into a plan and forgot to go in um, and check it and realize it's not the plan you want to be in, um, that's one of the reasons that we have that January 15th deadline where you can go and, okay, you'll have that month for January, but you can select a different one um, for the rest. And Zoid, who is eligible for insurance through the open, uh, through open enrollment through the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, so when we talk about eligibility for Affordable Care Act insurance, we're talking about a few different things. So first is just being able to enroll in the plans at all. And so if you are a U.S. citizen um, or an immigrant with a, a like who is legally present, um, there's a list of qualifying immigration statuses on healthcare.gov's website, um, you are most likely able to enroll in this insurance. Um, and then when we also when we talk about eligibility, we're also talking about eligibility for savings for the subsidy that lowers your monthly payments and in some cases lowers um, cost sharing that you would have on the plan. And that's going to be dependent on a couple of things, but primarily your household income and household size. And then if you're eligible for any other minimum essential coverage. So if you are on Medicaid or if you are offered an affordable plan for an employer. And if you're already enrolled uh, through the Affordable Care Act, uh, what do you need to do, if anything, during open enrollment? Yes. So what you need to do, if you have not already, is check the plans for next year. Because if you don't go in and actively make a selection, you will automatically be enrolled into either the same plan or a similar plan for next year. However, the price for that plan could go up. That plan could not be could maybe is maybe not available, and so you get enrolled into a different one, usually with the same issuer. But sometimes, if that's not available, a different issuer entirely, so a whole new insurance company. Um, the drug formulary could change. The network of providers that are covered could change. There's a lot of different things that could change. You need to go in, check the plan, 
and make sure it's the one that you want. And if not, look at your other options. Um, the other thing you need to do is make sure your application and all the information there is up to date, as particularly your income. Your income is always what you project for the next year. So if it's if you're projecting a different income for next year than what you put on your previous application, you need to go in and change that um, because that affects that tax credit or the subsidy that you get. Okay. And our next question is from Sherry, who wants to know, how old do you have to be to be covered for Medicare? And the answer to that is you have to be 65 unless you have a qualifying disability uh, or end-stage renal uh, disease or ALS. And you must sign up three months before or the month you turn 65 or three months after your birthday to avoid possible future penalties uh, for the rest of your life. But if you still have insurance coverage through your workplace or your spouse's workplace, you should talk to HR about it to sort out uh, what exactly you need to do when. But in general, if your 65th birthday is approaching, this is something to be aware of. You need to make sure that you are signed up uh, or if you have uh, other eligible coverage that you uh, take care of that because you don't want to be facing penalties. And in general, if you're looking for uh, insurance, how do you find a good insurance broker to work with? And are there questions you should ask or things to look for? Zoid? So um, this is a great question. Obviously, you know, agents make it their job to understand health insurance and help you select the right, right one for you. Um, but it can be very hard if you don't understand health insurance yourself to know if the agent or broker you're working with um, is actually saying all the right things. So, you know, I always start with find someone who listens to you, someone who asks you what you're looking for, what you know, what you want, and is actively listening. And when you voice concerns about your health care and your health insurance, they should be reassuring but not dismissive. They shouldn't say, oh, of course, that's always covered. We don't even need to check. You know, they should at least explain it to you. Like that is a preventive care that is, you know, always free for you know, folks who get it on, um, you need to get it annually, stuff like that. And it's also a good sign if you're talking to someone and they're willing to admit when they don't know something, someone who says, I don't know how much that would cost exactly on this plan, but let's look into it. That means that you have someone who's willing to put in that time and research and really help you um, get the right. And just to make sure everybody knows this, that you should not have to pay a fee to work with an insurance broker, that if you have any sort of questions about what the best insurance plan is for you, you can work with a navigator or a broker for free. And I do every year because it can be hard to figure out which of many plans is the best for your situation. So Zoid, if, if you, if somebody, you know, gets charged some kind of a fee, uh, you know, should they just say no, thank you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, if, you know, if they're trying to charge you directly, um, I have seen that a couple of times where, you know, it sounds like the agent may have been helping them pay their premium for the insurance, but the, the consumer wasn't actually sure if that's what was happening because they just got asked for their payment information. Um, you should take a step back, make sure, you know, you're, it's, you're only paying what the premium for the plan is and that your payment information is just going to the insurance company. And if you're being asked to pay any additional fees, just say, no, thank you. I'll find someone else to work with. Um, you know, there are some instances where agents are allowed technically to charge a fee for extra services they provide. 
Um, but you can certainly find ones who don't, um, and that typically is. And so I, what's the difference between a navigator and a broker? Yeah, so navigators get a, a grant from the government to help folks, particularly folks in underserved communities, like rural communities, non-English speaking populations, immigrant populations, um, folks who generally have a harder time getting insurance and working through the system. They help them understand what their options are are fill out the application and enroll. However, navigators, because they are not licensed agents and agents get licensed through the state that they work in, um, they cannot make plan recommendations. So they can't tell you what they think the best plan is for you, but um, they can certainly go over plans, tell you what the deductible means and what it is, um, but they can't say this plan is going to be better for you because you need a lower copay for this. Whereas an agent is able to do that um, because they've gone through the proper licensing to do that. Um, so you can also work with both if you would like. If you'd like to work with a navigator to fill out an application. And then once you have the application, if you're still not sure about the plan, go call up an agent and talk to them about your um, plan options. Um, that is, you're very much allowed to do whatever route. And to find an agent, you can find local help on healthcare.gov, right? That's right. Um, so I, I believe on their homepage, there is an option that, you know, says, you know, click here for more help and you're able to find local help. There's a couple of different ways you can do it. You can put in your information and someone will reach out to you or you can um, find a list um, and it'll tell you, you know, you're looking at navigators, you're looking at. Okay. And Health Sherpa also offers those services and only Affordable Care Act insurance plans. Yes, that's right. Um, so you can go to healthsherpa.com. You can run a quote on our website. And um, there's also a number there where you can call into our consumer advocate team. They are all um, licensed um, in various states. Um, and so if you get someone who's not licensed in your state, they can send you off to someone who is um, and they can help you choose the right plan. Um, they don't get commissioned directly from insurance companies um, and don't know which ones pay our kind of entire agency more than others. So they're a very unbiased resource for finding plans. And our next question is from Rusty, who shared an article about Medicare Advantage plans and fraud allegations from insurers and says that I will assume myself, a 75-year-old woman, will never see uh, traditional Medicare cover vision, dental, or hearing, all of which are a part of the human body and are needed more as we age. And that is probably correct because for the next couple years with a divided Congress, there isn't much chance that Congress is going to pass vision or dental or hearing coverage for people with traditional Medicare. However, if the balance of Congress changes after 2024, covering those benefits could be a priority. Uh, but as Congress is set up right now, you need 60 votes to pass uh, in the Senate and uh, Many Republicans have opposed expanding Medicare coverage. So uh, as things are today, it's unlikely that traditional Medicare is going to expand to include vision, dental, or hearing coverage anytime soon. Uh, but there are low and no-cost ways to get dental, hearing, and vision care through various nonprofit programs. And you can find more information on these programs at justcareusa.org 
or our Care Talk website, which is act.tv slash Care Talk. Uh, and Zoid, uh, people may have heard different things about uh, different metal plans for the Affordable Care Act, you know, a silver plan, a gold plan, a bronze plan. Uh, what are these and how do you know which one is right for you? Yeah, so basically these metal levels were designed to help folks kind of understand their plan options better. So they go from bronze, silver, gold, and in some areas you also have platinum plans. And so generally down at the bottom with bronze, you're going to be paying a lower monthly premium, but you're going to have higher deductibles and um, have to be paying more um, before your insurance kicks in and covers the rest. And then as we go up into silver and gold, your monthly premium will go up. Um, but you won't have to pay as much, um, you know, for doctor's visits and you'll have a lower deductible and maximum out of pocket. Um, so some of it comes down to, you know, why you're looking for insurance and kind of what needs you anticipate for the year. So if you're primarily looking for something to just, you know, make sure you get your preventive care for free, which all of the plans preventive care is free. Um, and then you just want something just in case, something major happens, then a bronze plan may be right. Um, you know, however, if you are going to the doctor more regularly, if you have more you know, prescriptions you're picking up every month, you're probably going to be wanting to look more at a silver and gold plan. The other thing is that depending on your income, you may also be eligible for something called cost sharing reductions. And these um, lower your your cost sharing. So your copay amounts, it lowers your deductible, it lowers the maximum you have to pay out of pocket for the whole year. Um, and if you're eligible for these, you're also, um, depending on your income level, going to have much lower premiums because of the savings you're able to get. Um, and so, but in order to take advantage of those cost sharing reductions, you have to enroll in a silver plan. They don't apply to any other plans. Um, so if you are, you know, enrolling and you see that you're eligible for cost sharing reductions, it's important for you to go look at those silver plans and the silver plans that you'll be seeing um, will have that cost sharing reduction applied. And so you'll see they, in some cases, look even better than gold or platinum. Um, and the other thing, there are some states, um, like I think New Mexico has kind of their own metal tier called turquoise. Um, so there are some little complications there, but the important thing to keep in mind is just that they are there to categorize the plans um, to make it easier for you to understand what your options are. Thank you. And uh, for everybody listening, uh, the deadlines to pay attention to, December 15th is a deadline. If you want insurance, it starts January 1st. But in almost all states, you have until January 15th to sign up if uh, the holidays just gets to be too much and you don't have the chance uh, to take care of it this week. And now I'm excited to introduce our special guests for today. Debbie White is the president of HPAE New Jersey and also an AFT vice president. And Anne Tan Piazza is the executive director of the Oregon Nurses Association. And they are going to talk about their just released report from nurses, medical techs, doctors, and other care providers on the healthcare staffing crisis facing the nation. And also, what can Congress, the states, the hospital industry, and all of us do about the problem of not enough staff? So welcome. Uh, would you like to introduce yourselves, Debbie? Sure. I'm Debbie White. I'm the president of Health Professionals and Allied Employees. We are a union, uh, the largest healthcare union in the state of New Jersey. I'm also a registered nurse of many, many years. And Anne? 
Hi, I'm Ann Tampiata, Executive Director of the Oregon Nurses Association. We represent over 15,000 registered nurses and allied health work workers here in Oregon, and we are the leading advocate for registered nurses here in the state. Great. And let's start with, uh, according to the study, uh, why are people leaving their healthcare jobs? Debbie? Well, frankly, healthcare workers are exhausted. They're burned out. They've had enormous stress in their lives over the last three years, but uh, and that's really been the impetus for most of our healthcare workers leaving in the last couple of years. We in New Jersey did our own survey. We actually contracted with a professional polling firm and did a survey to see exactly how many had left because we heard anecdotal stories, but we did, wanted the data to back that up. And what we discovered was so much more alarming than what we suspected. 30% said they left the hospital altogether. Of those who remain, 72% are thinking of leaving. Most alarmingly, 95% of the nurses with one to five years at the bedside want to leave. Number one reason, staffing. Number two, stress and burnout. So those are the reasons why we have seen nurses and other healthcare workers are leaving. And what about you, Anne? We are hearing very similar stories from our members in terms of leaving the workforce and the attrition. But I want to emphasize that we are not facing a nursing shortage. What we have is a crisis of registered nurses and healthcare workers willing to work in the current unsafe conditions. And as Debbie indicated, we are seeing a large exodus where over a decade, we have three workers quitting for every 100 employed. And our nurses want, want to provide quality and safe patient care, which they can no longer do under the current conditions and are electing to leave bedside nursing. So again, we have a shortage of nurses willing to work in these unsafe conditions. And Debbie, how worried are you about health professionals continuing to leave the field? Oh, tremendously worried. I mean, you know, in what, at one moment during a focus group during this survey, um, the surveyor said to the group of nurses that she was speaking to, do you guys have anything to add that we haven't gone over? One nurse said quietly, you know, it's dangerous to be a patient in the hospital right now, right? You understand that? Every nurse in that group agreed. The surveyor said that it was a very scary moment for her. Um, and in fact, federal projections show we can't train enough nurses quickly to replace all those who've left and who are going to leave their jobs in the near future. It's pretty bad. And we're very worried. And I think that if we don't, don't do something, it's only going to get worse. Since the beginning of the pandemic, nearly one in five healthcare workers have quit their jobs. And just in the past year, between 2020 and 2021, the total number of registered nurses in the workforce have declined for the first time in more than five years. And I'm very worried that one in three nurses who have not left yet that are considering will quit the workforce and leave the bedside. And Anne, this report is chock full of policy recommendations. What are you focusing on in your state in Oregon? 
Yeah, in Oregon State, we have had a staffing law with staffing committees for over two decades, and it is not working. There is no accountability and no enforcement. So in Oregon, we are looking at safe staffing levels modeled after California's racials law and strengthening our staffing committees at our hospitals that are already required. We know that these policy solutions work. There is strong evidence that ensures quality care when we have adequate number of nurses. The staffing ratios, minimum safe standards are easy to understand and they are easy to monitor. And in Oregon, we have launched a statewide campaign to raise the attention and push legislation. And I truly believe that our proposed legislation is the most powerful step that we can take to address the worsening hospital staffing crisis, to keep our nurses and our patients safe, and frankly, to prevent a complete collapse of our state's healthcare system. And Debbie, what are you focusing on in New Jersey? In New Jersey, just like Ann said, we are focused on staffing, staffing, staffing. We are focusing on a two-part legislation that would focus on, one, recruitment into the profession, and number two, retention, which will be focused on the work environment and safe staffing standards. We have to have safe staffing standards in order to change an environment that's causing a mass exodus out of the profession. We are, we are also focused on a federal uh, bill that's been out there for quite some time, sponsored by Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky, who I had the privilege of meeting most, you know, probably within the last couple of months of Illinois, um, called the Nurse Staffing Standards for Hospital Patient Safety and Quality Care Act. I mean, that's been on the books for a long time. We are still supporting that while at the same time coming up with statewide uh, legislation as well. Secondly, violence in the workplace is an issue for nurses. Unfortunately, in addition to all other stressors, healthcare workers are five times more likely to be assaulted at work than any other profession. So that there's also federal legislation that we're focused on as well as statewide legislation. We have regs at the Department of Health, but we think we need more um, to address this most important issue. And Debbie, uh, how have you seen the staffing crisis impact patient care? Oh, I've been a bedside nurse for a very long time. And I have to tell you, I can tell you so many stories of when I was a nurse and I didn't even work during the pandemic. I could tell you stories of patients who didn't get proper education because there was no time, because there was no time. I say that over and over. You cannot be everywhere at once. You cannot do everything at once. And the problem with the staffing crisis is just that. It will impact patient care. Patients will not get what they need because they won't have enough nurses. They won't have a nurse who can focus on them. I've seen new nurses in the bathroom crying because they can't do what they need to do. And this was before the pandemic. So I have to tell you, it's even worse now than I saw in all my years of nursing. And I was a nurse for 35 years. So, you know, if it's worse now, I can't, I can't tell you how bad it could get in the future. And Anne is right. 
our healthcare system. And Anne, how have you seen this crisis impact patient care? I think for patients in Oregon, it means longer wait in the emergency department in getting uh, triaged. It means longer wait in units before being able to move to an appropriate department to get the care that they receive. A recent survey of our members at the Oregon Nurses Association, less than 1% of our nurses say that their unit is staffed appropriately. And more than three out of four says that the short staffing means delayed care for our patients. It means delay in hygiene and nutrition care, delays in getting their medication, delays in getting their pain intervention and assessment. And nurses are not able to take their meal and rest breaks. And 95% say that they are fatigued or very fatigued which has a real impact on their ability to provide safe patient care. And I see from this report that hospitals are one of the most dangerous places to work in America. Uh, What can employers do to make your workplaces safer? And what can the government do, Uh, Anne? I think along with our healthcare system, our mental health system is broken in this country. We are not providing the necessary resources for healthcare workers and our population to deal with our mental health issues. And that leads to increase in violence and certainly increase to burnout for our members. The pandemic are really dark days for our members with the amount of death that they were seeing in days time that they may have seen over a decade. And that's a lot for our members and it's taken a toll and it's continuing to take a toll. I would say that we are barely on the surface And so we as a community, as a country, as a nation, need to invest in our mental health infrastructure to support our communities. And Debbie, what can employers and the government do to make workplaces like the hospitals safer? You know, I have to tell you, I think that the problem with our healthcare system is that profits have been placed above patient care. Um, hospitals are in it for the money. I don't care if they're nonprofit, for-profit, or public. They are in it for the money, and they are, there is not enough accountability on how those profits are spent. If we had started from the premise that everyone has a right to health care, establish what it takes to provide that premium health care to individuals and stop focusing on things that don't matter. Invest in staffing. Make staffing an asset rather than a line item that gets cut down to its lower number, which is what's been happening for years. Hospitals are not willing to invest the money in the staff. And that's what causes this issue. And it's, it's compounded because of the pandemic. And legislators, what can they do? Legislators need to focus on safe staffing legislation. They need to make it a priority. That, you know, every single person in this country, once they enter a hospital system, will be impacted by this crisis. Everyone will. And unless we make it a priority, unless we tell our legislators to do these things, to focus on this legislation, 
It won't happen. Our healthcare system will not be fixed. And that brings me to what can people watching this right now do? Uh, you know, what can we as patients, as advocates do to uh, solve this staffing crisis? Uh, Debbie? Educate yourself. Support nurses when you hear there is legislation coming up. Take action when you're asked to take action. Pay attention. This issue impacts everyone. And Anne, anything to add? Uh, just that nurses' working conditions are a patient's healing conditions. And it's not enough for the nurses to be called heroes. We need everyone in the community to stand with the nurses and advocate for better working conditions because ultimately the care that our nurses are able to provide is the care that our patients are receiving. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, this is something that uh, there may or may not be uh, any action uh, uh, from the federal government. Uh, Debbie mentioned some bills, uh, but we'll see in this divided government if anything moves forward. But in your state, you have a voice. Contact your governor and your state legislators and make sure you that they know that this is a crisis and that you as their constituent want them to do something about it. If there's specific pieces of legislation, push for those pieces of legislation. But even if there isn't, make sure that your elected officials know that this is a problem, that you're paying attention and you want them to solve it because the nurses and our whole communities need you to step up on this. And finally, uh, what gives you hope and our members give me hope. They are working day in and day out, putting their patients' needs often before their own. And it's their collective voice and their will to continue to do this work and to advocate for their patients and the community that gives me hope that we will see a better system coming out of it. And what gives you hope, Debbie? I'm so encouraged by the increased public focus on conditions in our nation's healthcare facilities. The media attention, podcasts like this one, all help to shed light on the situation. Hopefully, it'll lead to increased action of our nation's and state policymakers. So thank you so much, Laura. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Please call or text in your questions, and we will answer them in future episodes. And again, this is Care Talk.